Right, if you've got your Bibles, can you turn to Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 8, verses 34, and we're going to carry on where Keith is going to do a bit of an overlap in our reading. It's important we do that. The only reason I'm putting my glasses there is because I'm really vain. I, I genuinely need them to enhance both short and long-term vision with the stigmatism. I think I have rugby ball-shaped eyes, which is um, a symptom of being from Wigan. We like our rugby in Wigan. And uh, so, yeah, when I pick them up, it's because I've, slightly, I've become comfortable with you and I'm slightly less self-rejecting. It's amazing, actually, that... Um, Jesus can use such broken lives. I don't know about when you turn up at church sometimes. I, I sometimes come feeling utterly broken. You know, and that's the time when I just think, my goodness, anything can happen. You know what I mean? It's often in my weakest moments that the presence of God breaks out. So I'm, I'm just kind of, what are you going to do today, Lord? Because I'm, like, I'm a bit like Mark, you know. It's not been an easy week. I think the devil's been having a go. Very easy to say that stuff, isn't it? Christians kind of go for demons behind every rock sometimes, but um, I think sometimes it's a bit more than coincidence the week some of us get. Uh, We're in a spiritual war. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. The Lord spoke to me about four days ago about an enemy at the gates, and my goodness, the assault on my mind, my heart, my emotions. But I'm here, and so is he. Come on, Jesus, have your way. And you're here, and God is going to speak to you. Not because I'm particularly intelligent or coherent or have anything great of my own invention, but God is great, and God, by his Spirit, is able to take his word, even as we're reading it, and apply it to our hearts. I I was brought to tears when Kath read Psalm 103. It doesn't treat us as our sins you get it every time, you nail it every time, Kath. May you always remain in the spirit. I love your heart. I love the way you minister. I thought Phil was great today. Where's Phil? Superb today, mate. Superb. I love what I love about Phil is he has a heart to to put Christ at the center. Where Christ central churches, yes we are. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Christ at the centre. Whenever Christ is not at the centre, we become eccentric. God wants us Christ-centric. So long may that continue with Freedom Church. Let's read some Bible. I'm becoming comfortable with you now. (laughs) So vanity in Jesus' name. Okay, this is Freedom Church. I'm breaking through. This is also therapy. Come on, you're getting old, Steve, deal with it. <laughs> Psalm, Psalm, we're not in Psalms. Where did that come from? Mark eight thirty four. Then he called the crowd to him, that is Jesus, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of 
me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. You know, Al, we've got a self, Son of Man self-designation. Now, loving Al's master's thesis idea that's coming through, he excites me with his idea that he's got for it. And he said to him, truly I say to you, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, and they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they have seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matters themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And we'll stop there. Could go on, but it's a bit complex the next bit, so I'll leave it. (laughs) Genuinely. No, it's, it's kind of off-piste from what I want to share. I'm only joking. We could do it, but I bore you. Okay, so Keith can do it. Enjoy. I'll give you the hard stuff. So I'm going to talk about an unforgettable night. Have you ever had an unforgettable night? I don't want to know, really. Please don't tell me. An unforgettable night. This was an unforgettable night. It was nearly dusk. It was a very incredible experience. Peter, in his second epistle, writes about it as being an incredibly indelible memory. John probably writes about it. He talks about we saw his glory. Um, And perhaps James would have written about it if he hadn't had so much of a beef to have about the law and so forth. (laughs) The epistle of straw, as Luther called it. No, I love James, really. So I want to talk about four questions. Because we have questions in this unforgettable night and its narrative. First of all, what is the strange glory that showed in the face and the garments of Christ and on the mountaintop? And you'll forgive me for reading a lot of this. I have more material than's necessary to preach within the time, and I'm going to read to restrain myself. You know what I'm like for bouncing all over the show. Question two. And why did Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament appear with him on the mountain? Question three. Why did this voice come suddenly from heaven in the brightness of a cloud? Question four. Why was it that Peter and James and John alone of the disciples were chosen to view this event and we're with our Lord on the mountaintop. We'll come to them each in turn. Is that okay? So first of all, what is the strange glory that's on Jesus, his garments and his face? It's incredible to note, actually, that many liberal commentators seem to suggest that Jesus somehow took himself up the mountain and the sun lit him up. 
He picked the right spot and somehow the sun broke through the clouds and the radiance was worth noting in the Gospels and the Epistles, this glory because of the way reflected the earthly sun. I think men of the outdoors, like Jesus' disciples, would have not needed to comment on that. So we can immediately scrap that ridiculous notion. This, is what, this was an uncreated glory. This was a glory that which he had before the Father. And I would put it to you that Jesus' glory is all of one piece, and particularly in the Johannine literature, in John's writing. We have this sense of the glory that was in the crucifixion event and the glory that he had with the Father before the time would one, how be sh- one time be shared by you and me who believe in Christ when the glory of Christ is revealed. As it says in Colossians, when he appears we shall be like him, for we'll see, uh, it's in First John as well, isn't it? And we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is, and we shall share in his glory. Combine Colossians and First John there in one quote. I don't know how I did that, it's quite remarkable. But there's a sense of um, glory being with the Father in the cross, in the end, from beginning to end, Jesus radiates glory. But this is where interpretation of the Bible goes wrong because we, we read the surface narrative and we get lost in this sense of, well, he just, he just peeled back the curtain. He just showed the glory he had and some, suddenly the human Jesus showed the God Jesus and he unveiled himself and that was it and Jesus was just showing off. And that was as far as we go in our understanding of the text. And in doing that, we miss the entire, I believe, point of the presentation of his glory. There is a lot more to it. And this is the reason why I read into chapter 8, which I believe was finished by Keith. Because it relates to the work of the cross. It's not just a random revealing of his divinity. It's not just Jesus saying, hey guys, look what I can do. It has much deeper significance than that. It has a deep significance for you at Freedom Church today who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because you share in his glory and will one day enter into the fullness of that which Jesus was revealing on top of the mountain to those three select individuals. It was dust, but this was no sunshine event. This was, as the writer Mark says, a radiance like no launderer could ever reveal. It radiated out of the man. It radiated out of his garments. This, I want to put it to you, church, was God allowing them to skip centuries, maybe even millennia, to the finish line. This was God showing them what I would call, in theological jargon, realized eschatology, which is the end coming in the now. This is Jesus saying... Perfected humanity can attain to this. You see, every one of you, me included, this week will have failed God, you'll have failed a person, and we live in this corruptible world where we're dependent on Jesus Christ. But in that dependence on Jesus Christ, there is also a finished work that is both now and not yet. There is a tension of the kingdom of God that is a deposit and then a full payment at the end. And Jesus is almost signposting on the mountain, Mount Hermon here, where they're going. Remember it says, there are some here who will not taste death before the revealing of the kingdom of God comes with power. Okay? Some of you might not be convinced with my argumentation here, so I'm going to elaborate if I may be. Remember we're saying, why was the glory revealed in this way? John says, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Peter says that he remembers this event at the end of his life in his second epistle. This was notable. But what did it mean? If this was the glory of his divinity, we would have a kind of discord with other scriptures in text. Let me give you, for example, 1 Timothy 6.14. It says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. This is post-transfiguration. This is post the event on the mountain. This is apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic means the unveiling. That's what apocalypsis is, the, the Greek name for revelation, the last book of the Bible. It is the unveiling here, the, what we call the eschaton, the coming of the Christ, the second advent, the end times. No man can see. It's rather like Isaiah cries out, who shall dwell with everlasting burnings? It's rather like Moses with God on the mountain. You cannot see my face because no man will see my face and live, so I'll cover you with my hand. This, this radiance, believe me, this radiance that Jesus has is restrained. This glory, this kabod, the Hebrew word kabod, yes, it's interpreted weight of God's personality, who he is, but in, in another rendering of that Greek word for glory, so a Hebrew word for that glory, it's God dressed up in his battle armor, suited and booty, tooled up, ready for action. It's God in his fullness. Listen, if God were to open up his fullness, and he could have done in that moment, don't get me wrong, in all of his radiance, everything around would have been obliterated with holy fire, I believe. That's my conjecture. It's not Bible, it's not theology, it's my understanding from the Bible. God is transcendent, he is deep, he is rich, he is potent, he is majestic, he is great, he is good, he is limitless, he is beyond our thinking. That's why the Bible on one facet of his personality says he has a love which surpasses knowledge. You cannot know him just on one element in his love. So how can we possibly know him in his glory, in his glory that will go from generation to generation for all eternity? His kabod is beyond our understanding now. This is Jesus giving people a little taster. Have you seen that program with Nigella Lawson where they, they give the little spoons out? You may not have seen it. It's probably a bu- budget channel. It's kind of a cooking show where people turn up who think they can cook. And they, I think it's called The Taste. You with me? No, no foodies here? I am. I like my food anyway. They put the spoons out. Come on, Nigella and all the other cooking gurus. Taste my food. The taste. My goodness, that's the best lasagna I've ever had. You're through to the next round. That chili con carne. You could buy that on a local hot dog stand. Off you go. It's that sort of thing. The taste. This is a foretaste of heavenly glory. This is, yes, Jesus revealing himself. But it's not in all his fullness. I haven't finished yet. Don't worry, that's just the beginning. There's an even deeper significance to this event. It's about you. 
about me. It's about perfected humanity. It's about hope. It's about victory. We read in the scriptures, and we'll come to this, about first Adam and second Adam and fallen man and resurrected son. And we've got this amazing revelation of the glory of God because Jesus, who'd lived a perfect Life to that point had come, I believe, and this is my conjecture, my theory from chapter 8 to what we've just read, who potentially was in crisis at that moment. My, my, my uh, Christology, my understanding of Jesus Christ is a high Christology. It, it, it seizes divinity before it seizes humanity. It sees this limitless God parading on earth and Palestinian soil and, 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 and Galilee and he's going around with greatness But this is a man who's about to be butchered. And in his divinity, in his prophetic insight, he knew he was going to be butchered. And in that flesh, that holy human flesh, and I didn't mean holy as in sanctified, I mean completely human, yes divine, but completely human. He's not part this, part that. It's wholly human, wholly divine. And we could spend years teaching the variances on that thing, but we'll not bore you. Let's just agree on this. Jesus is man, Jesus is God, he's the great God-man. And in that moment of his Humanity, I believe he's in a point of crisis. I, I put it to you that it's my, th- my insight, it might be wrong, but I guess most of what we think we know, we'll find out when we get there. My uh, post-millennial, pre-millennial, a-millennial, how about pan-millennial, it's all going to pan out in the end. What do we know? What do we know? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What do we know? The weakest child who knows him has everything. Come on. Who is the substance of our faith? It's Jesus Christ. Let's get back to the point. In his weakness, he is there, I believe, saying, who do people say that I am? His close circle, his trusted, some say the Christ, some say Moses, some say the prophet. No, but who do you say that I am? Perhaps he's seeking reassurance. He's about to be butchered. And to top it off, he goes up Mount Hermon. And God, his father, has to break into conversation. This is my son. Jesus, it's okay. In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah about his exodon, his departure. Exodon, exodus. His departure, his crucifixion, his crossing over, to use Old Testament language. I I just, again, I put it to you that potentially in this moment there's a Christ, a human Christ, suffering anguish with his prophetic divine nature. And he's needing reassurance. He's there in the moment on the mountain talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses did stand on the promised land after all. Didn't just lose it on Mount Nebo. And in that moment, the God-man is reassured to the point where he can leave the mountain again and the glory departs. 
or at least fades. But this speaks of you. And this speaks of me. Because the finest man, the perfect man, steps up on that mountain and in that moment he could have an Enoch experience. He could have an Elijah experience. He could have a Moses experience. The Jewish thinking on that understanding of the text was this. These are the undead ones. Did you hear me? The undead ones. We're not talking about zombies here. We're talking about the translated. I think it's significant, and we'll come to Moses and Elijah in a minute, that we've got those characters with him. It could have been David. It could have been Abraham, the father of faith for all who believe. It happened to be Moses and Elijah. He's up on the mountain as raw as it gets, showing the hope of the glory that is coming. He could have gone and maybe thought he wanted to then. Remember, he said, I could have asked when he was on the cross for legions of angels to come and get him down. I think in this moment, he may have had a crisis. He may have had a crisis and thought, I could just leave. I could just get out of this place. But as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was probably talking about his departure as it's written in Luke's gospel because Moses and Elijah stood by him. Let's do Moses and Elijah now. We're going to do it later. Representative of the law and the prophets that point to perfected humanity in Jesus. Saying, look, this is why you came. This is your exodon. There's no turning back. Keep going. Get down that mountain. Finish the work. So when Christ, who is our life, shall appear again, says in Colossians 3, 4, then you, I, we, who believe, shall also appear with him in glory. We don't know what we will be like, but when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is then. The burning one. The one from whom men hid their faces from. To hide them from the face of his appearing. He's coming with a glory that will rock physical existence. They will call for the rocks, the scripture says, to fall on them. To hide us from the face of his appearing. This is not... Yes, they were frightened. Yes, they thought about the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's build booths in Jewish thinking. But this was no hiding under the rocks. This was just an extreme nervousness. When Jesus comes in his radiance with 10,000s of his Holy One, you and I, we better be ready. We better be ready. Can I ask you that question? Are you ready for the appearing of the living God in the form of his son, Jesus Christ? He will come with his holy ones. He will come, as Jesus said, with his harvesters, that's the angels, to separate the sheep from the wheat, the sheep from the goats. He's coming with his glory, of which this is a foretaste. And I have to ask you that question because you need to know that you know the living God and that you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ ever, you must do it today because your life will be transformed. And the Bible says from one degree of glory to the next until full glory is revealed. Are you still with me, church? Am I being a bit intense about this? You can say yes if I am. I think it's a remarkable story 
that Mark points to. A guy called Ray Steadman says, He didn't come to show us how God behaves, which I disagree with. He came to show us man as God intended him to be. I totally agree with that bit. He came to reveal perfected humanity. He came to show you the end from the beginning. He came to promise completion. We don't yet see everything subjected to him. It says in Hebrews 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, let's read that. Hebrews 2, 6-8 says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, that is, the coming age. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou cares for him? Thou dost make him for a little while lower than the angels, and thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And later on in verse 9, We do not yet see all things in subjection unto him, but we see Jesus... Interesting phrase, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's go back to the first two verses of that. Interesting quote from Psalm 8. A lot of people, they look into Hebrews 2 because it's comparing Jesus to and saying better than the old covenant, better, 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 with Jesus, better. Here is a quote from Psalm 8 where it's saying not everything has been made subject to him. Where it's quoted from, it's speaking, oh man, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you should care for him, for you made him a little lower than the earth, and so on. This is a direct point to humanity. Yes, perfected humanity in, humanity in Jesus, but ultimately Jesus, the second Adam, showing us the end from the beginning. And I want to say to you that there's many people in this room, there's many people in the world today, in fact most people, they, they follow Maslow and they think that there needs to be this self-actualized reality. Let me explain that. We need to keep climbing the ladder until we get to a place where we feel like we've arrived. And if you can, you know, if I just get the next job, if I just get the next degree, if I just get the wife, if I just get the right car, if I just get the right house, if my kids get into Oxford, if I just get this many holidays a year, I can somehow be fulfilled. Have you heard of Maslow? Wave at me if you want to, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you will know that psychological theory. Self-actualization is the pinnacle at the bottom of the pyramid is this sense of I I fill myself with basic needs, food and drink. And as we go up, it gets less and less important. But actually, it's ultimately important when we get to the top. I love Maslow's theory. I think it's very clever. But to the point, humankind is trying to arrive where God intended him to be, her to be. Your quest, your restlessness, humanity's desire to climb mountains, fly into space, cross seas, become the next CEO, be this by that, is actually not a bad thing, but it's just a fallen expression of ruling over creation. It's about man trying to arrive at the place God gave him to be, which is to rule. But it's doing it man's way. It's because man has subjected himself to a self-worship rather than to a God-worship. 
to a God-centeredness versus a Christ-centeredness. So God-centeredness versus a self-centeredness. And they're in tension between the two. And the Christian must take Christ-centered, God-centered existence in order to climb God's true ladder to arrive where the transfiguration points to. Are you with me? Am I being too wordy? Wave at me if you're understanding some of this at least. I need to know. <laughs> I can be really verbose and jargonistic and jar- even there jargon. Say word- wordy stuff and it's just the planet geek I come from. Please forgive me. <laughs> this is man's lost identity. This is man's lost destiny that Jesus, the second Adam, the second Adam means from the ground, the second man, the perfect man, is pointing actually. Yes, I came to show the Father. That's why I disagree with Ray Steadman. He came to reveal what Dad was like, to show God. But he came to show what it was possible to be as a human being yielded to God, the Holy One. God designed people, God designed you to have God reigning on your heart and life. In his glory. I believe Adam and Eve started to have a race that died quickly and became completely depraved because they exchanged the glory of God for the lesser things. Like it speaks of in Hebrews, a a morsel of food. Let's call it the apple for the birthright. I'm speaking of Jacob and Esau, if you remember that from Hebrews. He exchanged trash for treasure. And don't you and I do that most weeks when we choose lesser things that, you know, just search your heart. There'll be times when you indulge yourself with comfort, and I can hold my hand up with you on this, with things that bring comfort to your soul, but it's divorced from the God of all comfort. You might be a person who likes a good drink, to chill you out of alcohol. You might like to stuff your face with fatty or sugary food just to bring chill out. You might like to indulge yourself with extensive television of themselves and on their own, not in extreme. Nothing wrong with them. But quite often we develop this tendency as human beings to separate ourselves from the Holy One who is the, described as the God of all comfort. And I wave as guilty as anyone in the pew. We exchange the glory. You see, Jesus made a veil in his flesh. The Bible speaks of access to the holy God in this age, in this dispensation, where we can walk into a place of absolute provision. The God of all comfort opens his arms to you and says, you know what, that distress in your life, I really care about it. That joblessness, it matters to me. The hurt over your parents, I weep for you. Phil said, God prays for us. Jesus prays for us. Yes, he does. I think God loves you more than you ever thought it. You've heard it so many times, some of you. I think it's time we now start saying, God, would you just peel that layer by layer and start revealing your divine love for me? Because God loves you. 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 Are you hearing me? I could say that all night and it still wouldn't peel one layer off how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would send his only son to make this wretch a treasure. <laughs> it's our very new frontiers. <laughs> so, 
The way to the top with Jesus is letting God reign on our heart. It is to be in subjection to the Father. The perfect man in the transfiguration was showing what it was like to be yielded to the perfect will of God. How are we doing? Probably done about half an hour now. Have a look where we're up to. So we know that, question one, what was the strange glory that was shown in the face of Christ and the garments of Jesus? It was what I call a realized eschatology, which is simply this, that the foretaste of what is to come. A bit like in Ephesians 1 and 4, where it talks about this idea of a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. You know, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, some of you. You've experienced the presence of God. The Bible says in his presence, this fullness of joy. The Bible says that at his right hand there are pleasures evermore. The Bible says one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We trot out these phrases, but there is deep truth in them. And to meditate on just one of them would change our life. I challenge you to meditate on one biblical truth this week and myself. His presence pleasures evermore it will drive you to say okay God give me some more of your presence and then you'll start getting delighted in God's presence and you'll get a healthy addiction to hanging out with Jesus there are some healthy addictions says Carmen he remembers Carmen addicted to Jesus that's 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 rough sorry it's a 1980s 90s classic You've gone wave with me if you know Carmen. Come on. Satan, bite the dust. (laughs) Moses and Elijah, what were they doing on the mountain? As I've said, they were the expression of the law of Moses and the prophets. And they were also a presentation of the undead ones to show that there is this Jesus needing to be reaffirmed and reassured the need to go down and experience the exodon, the crucifixion, the departure. Number three was, why did this voice come suddenly from heaven in the brightness of a cloud? It was that God, again, needed to affirm Jesus. Peter was very much like you and me. He kind of enters scripture with a thud. Anyone like Peter here? Anyone? Anyone? I'm a bit like Peter. I don't know about you. He enters scripture with a thud, it's been said. And Mark, who was Peter's amanuensis, the writer for him, knew about Peter. And he wrote this, that he did not know what to say. He was overwhelmed. And yet later on in his life, He said that I can testify that this is the Christ. This booming voice to answer my question was to correct Peter and to reassure Jesus. And finally, just before we close, why was it that Peter, James and John were alone with the disciples and they were chosen to view this event where the Lord went to the top of the mountain? Let's skip a bit for the sake of time. Although perhaps we might put it first when confronting this incident, why is it that Peter, James, and John and the disciples chosen were the disciples chosen to see this and to learn this lesson? Why them? And the answer very briefly is this there are the they are the only three men you with me, I'm reading to stay stay focused. 
there are only three men among the disciples who before this had openly and vocally avoided the principle of the cross. Let me explain that to you. Remember just back in Mark where Keith read to us in the eighth chapter that we have this account in verse 31 of Jesus being able to teach his disciples that the Son of Man, Al, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But Peter took him aside and said to him, Lord, be it not so. Spare yourself, Lord. This cross business, you don't have to go through it. After all, the man like you, the Son of God, you don't need to go to a cross. Spare yourself, Lord. And Jesus didn't spare his words, did he? As you know, he said, get behind me, Satan. That's in a pastoral setting, the pastor would be lambasted for being so harsh. Jesus would call people devils, foxes, whitewashed tombs, Satan himself. And these are his close circle. Maybe our view of pastoral ministry is slightly distorted and we think the pastor should always stroke our heads. Sometimes pastor needs to beat the sheep with a stick to get them from a dangerous place. If you've been in ministry, some of you, you'll, you'll know that that happens to save people. Discipline is painful, but afterwards it re- yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I had to challenge one of the people in my church, and I'll not bring to you the gender because so, that person might visit sometime, but this person in my church was hypercritical, gossiping. I ended up going to this person's house with another elder and told them off. This person, I'm rubbish, aren't I? This person said it was a turning point in their life and they ended up a deacon in the church, a preacher, called to the ministry, full of the Holy Spirit, my best team member. She was full of God. I told you the gender because it slipped out before. I'm not very good, am I? This person is amazing, but it needed that harshness pastorally to bring them on track. And to do that well, you need to be in tune with the Spirit because you can shipwreck people. Do you know what I mean? I don't throw that stuff around often. If I did, Keith would beat me up and send me out. It's good to have a senior leader who reigns you in, isn't it? To be in subjection. So Keith's very good at being slowly, slowly. Sometimes he'll let me off his leash. <laughs> Hear me, Jesus wasn't always tender. Back to the point. Peter's challenging him. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Of course, Peter was thinking like man. Jesus had a job to do. And then we jump forward to 10. Either side, it sandwiches this event where James and John, the son of Zebedee, come to him and say, teacher, we want for you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want of me? And they said to him, grant to us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Listen, they both want glory in this question. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? That is speaking of his death, of course. And with utter flippancy, in foolish ignorance, these two twins say to him, we are, and Jesus said to them, you shall indeed drink the cup that I drink and the baptism that I am baptized, you shall be baptized with. And I think he goes on to say, but the right and my left, that's my father's business. We have this situation then, therefore, with Peter on one level saying, don't go to the cross. We have other guys who are lightening the work of the cross. And Jesus, almost knowing these things are going to happen, takes them for tutelage up the hill to show them his glory, to speak of his exodon, so that they can see 
a close hand where Jesus is going and why it is important that they go to the cross. And here is the point for you and me in that moment, that actually if we do as those disciples do and reduce and peripheralize the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ in our own life, then this perfected man in his glory in the transfiguration is never going to be attainable to us. If you move away from the cross of Jesus Christ and try to get to God any other way apart from the cross, and there's many who've tried to do that, you will not be saved. Is that harsh? Am I being harsh? Or should we talk about those who don't hear the gospel and get down a theological track? Let's not go there. Al wants me to go there. That's a deeper question. But the hearing of the the cross of Jesus Christ is God's way for reconciliation with man. And I believe that actually it's not just the, the, the righteousness that was provided for in the work of the cross. It's the fact that people reject the work of the cross. It's about faith in God's provision. I can see myself needing a chat with that. <laughs> I do respect this guy's theology, by the way. I should say it publicly. Okay, there's a few people who've been a bit confused with, with this. I respect this man's theology and the way he's looking and genuinely inquiring of the text, and I'm enjoying my debates with him. Some of you will find that difficult, but I understand the geek, the geek journey that we're both on, and we're just trying to work it out. But I'm, I want to say to you that if we move away from the central truth of a crucified Son of God, there is... No other way. Jesus said, I am the way. The provision in the shed blood of Jesus is extreme provision of God. It is God saying, I have not held anything back. It is God being butchered in our stead. It is a finished work. And when we understand that not only was Jesus crucified, but you were crucified with him who believe, it allows God to reign on your heart. It says to yourself, not just that Jesus died for me, but when Jesus died, so did I. Is that scripture? Is that New Testament? For in Christ... All died, and therefore all shall be made alive. Okay? So the provision of the cross is God's fullest provision. It is God saying, it is finished. And we need to be people who cling to the cross, the old rugged cross, so that the glory of the Holy One can rest on us, and though we can be assured of that transfiguration being a complete and final payment of what is deposited in us. Okay. So there's a mistaken idea about Christianity today that because Jesus went to the cross, we'll never have to. Nothing could be further from the truth. He went to the cross in order that we might go with him there and and through the cross to the resurrection and beyond. And the cross is always the open door to liberty. It's the cross that sets us free from our self-centered lives and breaks this damnable barrier within us that insists we live to please ourselves. It's the cross that puts that to death. And by accepting that, by passing through that, by renouncing this right to self, we experience with him the cross. But when we come to the cross, beyond it always lies resurrection. You can't have Pentecost without Calvary. You can't have the glory of the resurrection mourn without the darkness of crucifixion. But we accept death to our own, by it we accept death to our own plans, our own programs, our own lives, our own ego. And when then beyond that lies rest and power and the lost secret of humanity which Jesus came to restore 
a restored humanity which will share with him in glory when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. (laughs) That was difficult to deliver. Did you stay with me? Did you get something from that? Sorry if I was a bit vehement about the statement on the cross. Perhaps a bit intense, but if we don't cling to the cross, what have we got? You know, it was God's fullest provision and it needs embracing. Shall we pray? Can we have just a song to close? Is that okay, Keith? And an offering as well. Um, I just like a response to, to that in the sense that we're calling ourselves to remind ourselves of the cross. We'll do the offering just a couple of minutes. Can we just have a, have a pray? And just respond to this sense of needing to embrace the finished work of the cross and the need to remember that Christ has paved the way in his finished work.